Everyone, hello and welcome back to When Movies Were Good, coming to you live, depending on when you're listening to it, but <laughs> coming Fair to you point. from <laughs> coming to you from Melbourne, Australia, where me and my special guest are co-host Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, can't believe uh, it's been about a year since we started and we're doing it again remotely from lockdown. We are because we're actually back in lockdown again. Uh, things got out of control again and somebody got off a plane or something happened and who knows, but it's gone up the creek again. So I'm here at the resort studios by myself and Matt's at his family house. <laughs> yes, but, but at least I got a new microphone now so I can um, have a nice voice while talking to the computer. Yes, exactly. We actually, uh, our first major investment for when movies were good, we got, is it, it's a Rode microphone, is it? Yeah, so it's a, a pretty reliable um, one, although until uh, we get a sponsorship deal with them, I'm not going to say anything else nice. <laughs> we'll be waiting for that, I guess. Um, welcome, everybody. And yes, we are back in lockdown, but we're still going to carry on with the show just as we did at the start. We are doing our Rex Harrison double. We've got two Rex Harrison films from earlier in his career, uh, sort of from the 19, hang on, where are we? The 1930s, wasn't it? Yeah. So we have Blythe. So uh, 1945 was the um, Blythe Spirit one. Yes, sorry. And 19, sorry, 47 was the Ghost of Mrs. Muir. So it's Blythe Spirit, which is Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. and the Ghost of Mrs. Muir, 1947, with the um, lovely Jean Tierney in the lead role with him. So, yeah. go ahead, uh, Matt. Bly, Bly Spirit, apparently, it's even got a new one out, uh, version out recently. Uh, it has um, the one of the cast from Downton Abbey on it. Yeah, it had um, yeah Isla Fisher, who's an Australian actress, and I and Judy Dench, uh, isn't it as well? I was sort of curious to maybe check it out, but it didn't get very good reviews. I don't know whether that's because they've taken artistic license and tried to drive the, the, um, a more modern retelling of it because, you know, you listen to Noel Coward's, uh, script and the dialogue for the characters. And I'm not sure that would translate too well now. So we will kind of discuss that, but first we'll, Matt, we'll just have a, a little bit of a brief discussion about the um, joining point of these two films, which is Rex Harrison himself. That's right. So just to um, refresh the audience's memory about Rex Harrison, he was, you know, one of the most well-known English actors ever to be. He began as a stage actor and he actually made his West End debut way back in 1936. So he was predominantly a stage actor who then went over into films and TV of course, he is. He started, and he—I think he was the person that originated the role of Professor Henry Higgins in the stage production of *My Fair Lady*. And then, of course, yeah. with Audrey Hepburn, he—that that, I would say *My Fair Lady* and perhaps *Doctor Doolittle* are his two most famous t- uh, film roles. Would you say that, or? Well, definitely, um, uh, the generation of people like me who obviously didn't know him as the mainstream stage actor, that would have been the two um, main films that his identity would have been projected through as uh, Dr. Doolittle and uh, Henry Higgins. Both are quite a bit older than the films we're seeing uh, in this episode. Yeah, so, you know, he began obviously in the UK and these early films that he did 
Um, so Blythe Spirit was shot at the Denim Studios in the UK and The Ghost of Mrs. Mule was shot in California, but it was, a, you know, a film that was set in, in England. So he's predominantly, you know, he worked with Vivian Lee, he worked with a lot of the top English actresses in film and then sort of transitioned and, and did some Hollywood films as well and obviously did a lot on Broadway, a lot on the West End, uh, he did some television. But I was looking through his catalogue of films and compared to some other well-known actors, yeah, you can tell that he was definitely a stage actor as well because he, he spent a lot of his life on the stage. Well, that seems to be a common pattern, uh, particularly with a lot of actors heavily based in the UK because there's like a, a big theatre scene to work in. There, there is. And I, the one thing I do like about um, English actors or actors from the UK is they seamlessly are able to go from stage to TV to film and back again, whereas... In America, a lot of the actors are a bit more sort of sectioned off. You're a Broadway actor, you're a TV actor, uh, you're a B-grade actor, you're a television actor, you, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that some people don't jump across, but, I mean, you're not really going to go and see Meryl Streep on Broadway or anything sort of thing. Well, I think part of that is, uh, a geo- like you do obviously have a bit of a class uh, system that kind of existed between the genres in the early 20th century that there was definitely a part of that but i think it's also a geographical one because a lot of um american film production did occur in um, los angeles on the west coast for a lot of the time and still does and although they have uh, changed a fair bit um it, the east coast is still probably more well known for its live theater than the west coast yeah, that's true. It's sort of they bring plays to Los Angeles, but they don't stay in Los Angeles. So I think Michael Crawford actually originated the role of Phantom in Los Angeles and stayed there for a short period of time and then went off. And then they got a, a well-known TV actor to take Robert Guillaume to take over from him. So not that you would I still have can't picture. I still can't picture Frank Spencer as the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there's a few bootlegs out there of him now. But, it, yeah, and I think that was the whole thing when he got cast in that. And I guess Rex Harrison's very much of that sort of, yeah, kind of jack-of-all-trades, does a little bit of singing, does a little bit of, you know, however well they can do it. They just jump around, whereas, yeah, the, the Los Angeles-based actors are really kind of, I'm on TV, I'm on film, and and that's sort of the end of it, which is a shame because I really think acting should be a complete profession of all the different disciplines. So we're going to go... Different- so, yeah, uh, it's, it's just quite a different experience from uh, from both um, genres because, like, uh, uh, film, yes, you're you may get a lot of the attention at the end, but um, as far as the production side, you're really one cog in a massive wheel because sort of the message and the, of the storytelling isn't just you as the actor, but also a lot of the um, uh, directing and editing that goes into creating your presence. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I agree with that. So we're going to jump right into the first film, which is Blythe Spirit. It's a 1945 film. It is uh, regarded as a fantasy comedy, and it's directed by the great David Lean. So David Lean's book must be very familiar to our audience, uh, Dr Zhivago, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, Lawrence Arabia, which is an experience to sat through, sit through. I sat through that as a teenager. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> that was, um, you know, sort of, but, you know, worth it in the end. Amazing uh, thrills. You just need to go to the bathroom beforehand. Yeah, that's exactly. A beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, so 
this uh, he was part of the group of people that wrote the screenplay, but obviously based off the Blythe Spirit 1941 play by Noel Coward. So this film also has Kay Hammond and Margaret Rutherford in the roles of the respective wives. And I wasn't really familiar with either one of their work, but they are English actresses and they did go on to do other, other films. Uh, and then we also had some other really interesting people in the cast as well. So the running time is 96 minutes. It was shot in the UK. Uh, it was distributed. The, the production company was Two Cities Films. So basically just to run the, our audience through what the film is about, and I think this does would work well on the stage. I'd be curious to see it on the stage. Uh, so Rex Harrison's character, Charles, they have a get-together, a psychic comes over, basically draws out the spirit of his dead wife. Well, I would read it Elvira, but they say Alvira because I was like, Alvira, I've never heard of that name, but I think we would just read it differently. But Alvira turns up and uh, basically a lot of mayhem ensues, especially with his uh, wife, Ruth, played by Constance Cummings, and basically everyone sort of ends up with a spiritual notion, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, without giving too many uh, spoilers of the plot, and it did end up being quite different from what I expected because I hadn't seen the play beforehand, which mm-hmm. is probably a good way because I didn't have any uh, preconceptions. I know Noel Coward wasn't uh, as keen on the film himself, and so uh, who knows what he would have thought of the most recent film that's uh, come out with Judy Dench. Uh, yep. But as a film, I liked it very much. It, I actually um, uh, had not read the year that it was uh, produced in uh, for a while be- before I'd um, seen the film. And then afterwards, I re- realized that it was 1945. And because this is quite a light comedy, uh, I'm thinking because you'd have had a lot of people coming at the end of World War Two or around yeah. that time uh, watching it. I'm like, um, uh, would they have felt... Um, uh, inappropriate um such a light comedy or is it exactly what they needed at the time yeah well i yes it's definitely a a light comedy um i did love i think alvira 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 was my favorite character she was just so out there and i think that kay hammond did uh, a really good job with her now what do you know about the special effects they used for alvira and then ruth what do you um, think they were doing? That so they just were wearing a lot of makeup, or so these these are the so Alvira is the spirit of the wife that's recalled um, to Rex Harrison's character, and he, you know, basically they're on screen together, but she's this ghost figure, and she looks like a ghost. She's like sort of almost looks green, like. <laughs> well, some of the special effects uh, where you see her as a uh, kind of a silhouette or. Because most of the time she's effectively a normal person interacting with the space around her, but she's a different color. That could have probably just been explained with makeup. Yeah. Um, because judging by the rest of the um, space, there wasn't a filter or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, in parts, though, where she's like uh, being a ghost and like people are able to sit on her and the like, uh, some of that would have probably been similar techniques to what we saw in King Kong, where they may have had half the film uh, exposed with one part of the image and vice versa and so Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, superimposing of two images on the same uh, section of negative was a common uh, technique for that sort of supernatural effect Uh, 
although it isn't that heavy in the effects so they they've used though there's like you could tell they've used it sparingly like two or three times and any more than that and it would have just been a bit too uh, a, a bit a bit too um overdone the most of the ghostly effects were more uh, sort of parlor game tricks and sort of spooky horror story tricks with the uh, loud winds and everything mm-hmm. so the other lead in this film uh, is Dame Margaret Taylor Rutherford. Now, I was like, where have I seen this lady before? Uh, she was uh, Miss Marple in four of the Miss Marple films in the 1960s. So I was sort of wondering where I'd seen her before, and it must be from that. So she was great. Um, you know, she was a lot of fun in this film. She was playing the psychic, the spiritual person who brought Alvira back into the house. Uh, I thought she did a great job. Actually, everyone in the film was a lot of fun. Now, what did you think of Rex Harrison in this film? Well, any film I see with Rex Harrison, it's kind of hard to it's, – it's, I basically almost see him as Henry Higgins plus or minus wrinkles. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's – uh, I, I really liked his presence. Uh, it's become well known in years since he died that he was one of the most horrible people you could communicate with um, off stage, and I'm sure we'll get to talking about that soon. But yep. I I thought his uh, presence was uh, really energetic. It was humorous. You liked uh, he he wasn't um he wasn't just a passive male character between the the two fighting. The, the two fighting spouses, which could have easily fallen into with a less strong actor, but he knew how to hold his own. He did. Uh, I agree. I think uh, the My Fair Lady role, and also I also think of him as Dr. Doolittle as well. So those were two big successes he had in the 1960s on film, which tend to overshadow pretty much everything else in his career. I liked him in the film. But often through the film I was thinking, is there another person that could have played this role? Uh, I don't want to bring up his name because you would know who I'd be talking about, and that would be Ray Milland. But, uh, I, I actually I just, haven't seen Ray in, in that stage of his career. I've only seen his older roles. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I must admit, like, sometimes I have a hard time concentrating, but that's a story for another time. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just... Yeah, not not to say he wasn't good in the film. I just kept thinking, I just think I'm so familiar with him in the voice uh, and all the rest of it. But he is just such a, a giant of, you know, the caricature of what an English gentleman should be like. Like the, um, the gentleman that does Family Guy, now his last name, Seth, Seth uh, his last name now escapes me, but he modelled the character of Stewie, the baby, on yeah. Rex Harrison's voice. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound exactly like that, but I get what he was dying for. And then they even said that... Well, Harrison dis- was something of a baby in his private life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also I was reading that some military um, costumes, uh, face masks or something, were modelled after his face. So, you know, he is a very interesting character. So... The other thing that to remind the audience of also is that the, the reason we chose these two films was, yes, Rex Harrison, but also there was the ghostly connection in both of the films. So in Blythe Spirit, there are the, the, the ghost of uh, Alvira, Rex Harrison's wife comes back into play and then a few other people do as well. 
and then the other film that we're doing, The Ghost of Mrs. Mule, it says it in the it says it in the uh, title of that, and ha- obviously has a ghostly presence as well. But just quickly going back to Blythe Spirit, uh, I think Noel Coward was determined to have the film made in the U- UK because he didn't like how the US vulgarised certain aspects of his work. But then, as you said, Matt, he wasn't one hundred percent happy because there was a change in the ending. And I can see it from his point of view. There's uh, in the play, uh, Rex Harrison's character drives off very much in the real world, and then in this, the film, he is sitting there, not in the real world, if that makes sense. So, what did you yeah. think? Well, it's kind of hard to judge. Like I said, I haven't seen the original play, so I'm uh, I'd have to um, read through the script or see the play before I can actually. Um, uh, check in on Noel Coward's uh, disapprovals, I, which is why I tried to look at it as a film on its own, with it uh, rather than um, judging the play itself, which is um, Coward's uh, intention. And even then, um, every production's different. Uh, but I, I thought the film was a, a nice story on its own. But this says something about how brainwashed you can be about genre, because coming into the story fresh, I kept assuming that it must be that um, Rex Harrison's character had killed off his first wife or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because I was thinking, okay, uh, when's the accusation going to be? Because I was thinking, oh, uh, Elvira, she seems rather um, uh, happy to uh, meet her killer if that was the case. Yeah. That- <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I was thinking maybe there was going to be a twist or something as well, but there, there wasn't, I guess there was a bit of a twist at the end perhaps. So maybe I guess that's it wasn't that they... kind of story. It was more about um, it, it was more about the personal feuds going between the uh, two spouses. Yes, that's that's right. And a lot of the banter and the the asides and um, you know, sort of a litany of accusations against the other person. And Alvira was bored when she was alive, and now she's bored when she's dead because she wants him to come there. And yeah, so and then even his current wife, you know, Ruth is, you know, they're going at each other. So you know, dead or alive, it just goes to show you that, you know, you, sometimes you, you really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. So, <laughs> Well, there is um, a movie with Cary Grant that almost um, plays out um, the plays out that storyline uh, more in the flesh where he his wife has been lost on an island for years. Uh, he's since remarried and she reappears and... Um, so she and it turns out that uh, she was also with another man on the island, and so uh, there is that sort of similar um lost uh, lost but regained romance, and it uh, often and I suppose the, that storyline in its rawest form can be quite flexible because uh, Noel Coward's other play um uh, Private Lives I think um has a similar mm-hmm. um uh, feature on um the sort of uh, sort of menage a trois conflicts of romance. Yes, I have seen Private Lives on the stage, and I I did enjoy that. Actually, my mum really enjoyed that. So was that the MTC done... production about five years ago, something like no, that? No, it was no, it was a, a local Melbourne. Theater. It was like the Essendon Theatre Company. So for those okay. who don't live here, it's just a suburb in Melbourne, and they had a local theatre company that did it. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I saw the MTC production, and yeah, that was um quite impressive. They had a rotating stage and everything. Yes, yeah. No, I thought I just thought it was more of a dinner theater vibe, and I actually really enjoyed it. It was it, they did a really good job. 
So we, we shall jump over to The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, 1947. Again, romantic fantasy as well. Anything, I guess, with a ghost in it's got to be fantasy, starring yeah. uh, Jean Tierney and Rex Harrison, of course. Now, Joseph L. Mankiewicz directed this, and he is known for some great films all about E, The Philadelphia Story, one of my favourite films growing up. Uh, and 20th Century Fox bought the rights to the novel, which was published only in the United Kingdom at that stage. So the film is set in the United Kingdom, even though it is a Hollywood film. Now, it fascinates me how fast sometimes books can uh, go from uh, being published to being filmed. Yeah, exactly. And also the great Bernard Herrmann, this was one of his scores, and I was reading that he, this was one of his favourite scores. So Bernard Herrmann obviously was a composer that worked a lot with Alfred Hitchcock and composed one of the most famous film soundtracks, Psycho, of all time. Uh, and he actually said that, and, and it, the music was beautiful, though, really, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a shame he didn't, like, uh, appreciate his own work in films much more because he primarily regarded himself as a sort of a, a pure music composer and uh, anything he did for Hollywood was cash on the side. Yeah, uh, what an amazing talent he is. So just... You know, watching this film on that alone to listen to Bernard Herrmann's score, uh, it, it's fantastic. So just to recap, now this, The Ghost of Mrs Muir is quite famous. I know it because I used to watch the TV show when I was growing up. Might be a little bit before Matt's time. It was technically before my time, but they it, um, it, it was before my it. time. I think I saw a DVD set in GB High Five once. Yeah, <laughs> and I actually, so I associate. The ghost, which is the Rex Harrison role, he's playing the sea captain ghost in this film. Um, I associate that with Edward Mulhern, the Irish actor who played him in the TV show. So I'm very much, the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking a lot of Edward Mulhern just because I'd grown up watching him on the Ghost of Mrs. Muir TV show that ran for two seasons and Hope Lang was the lead there. So in this film, obviously, we have Rex Harrison, we have the beautiful Jean Tierney, and we have George Sanders, who I'm familiar with as well. So the basic of the plot is Lucy Muir, played by Jean Tierney, with her daughter, played by, well, the first part of the daughter, is played by Natalie Wood in one of her first roles. I knew you'd um, be onto that. Yeah, I was like, hang on, Natalie Wood, the Natalie Wood, yep. So Natalie Wood in one of her playing Anna and her loyal maid Martha. So after the death of her husband, she moves into this cottage by the sea against the wishes of her husband's family and, yeah, basically finds out she's living with the ghost of the occupant, former occupant of the house who was a famous sea captain named Daniel Gregg. And this is basically the plot of the TV show as well. I think there's another child involved um, with Mrs Muir, just a, a little boy and girl. Uh, and it's sort of about the relationship that Mrs Muir has with this ghost living in the house and there is a romantic a sort of inclination there, I guess, once they get to know each other and then somebody real arrives on the scene and that goes all pear-shaped and he gets upset so he leaves for all eternity but then they somehow manage to end up together at the end. So what are your thoughts on this one, Matt? <laughs> well, I love the movie uh, very much. It's uh, one of Rex Harrison's best ones. I, and I go so far as to say it's even better than... Uh, his his um performance in My Fair Lady, but that's a big call. Yeah, and he, 
this is one film where um, actually even uh, some of my own family have seen it as well, and they don't necessarily uh, follow the classics like I do, but they really love it as well. Yeah, it's it's you know it is a. I think that's why it did translate into a TV show because of all, it's a bit like sort of, I guess, I Dream of Jeannie sort of thing. Will they find out about Jeannie? Will they, you know, I had to bring Larry Hagman into this, but, um, you know. Yeah, will we they... haven't had that come here for a while. <laughs> and by the way, Matt has recently seen it. I do have photographic proof that I, yes. <laughs> that I met him. I might have to put that on our, um, on our, when movies are a good page. But, um, uh, yeah, it's that whole thing. Will they find out about it? Are you talking to yourself? Is the person crazy? So it's along those very sort of familiar tropes of, you know, I can see you, they can't see you, they think I'm crazy sort of thing and, uh, you know, lots of, you know, mirth and, mer- you know, mayhem caused by that and lots of sort of situations where the lead character often is called crazy by everybody else until they sort of cop on that there is actually something there after all. Um, so the New York Times called The Ghost of Mrs. Muir a pleasurable film despite its failings. Yeah, maybe. What do you, what do you think about that? I They weren't particularly uh, into Jean Tierney's performance, I don't think. They didn't consider her much as an actress, but I thought she was fine in it. Well, I liked her. I, I, I liked her. I mean, I, uh, she didn't seem to be as powerful com- compared to Rex Harrison's performance definitely mm-hmm. uh, to an extent it was the uh, it was the, her, her lines that carried her ca- the strength of her character forward more than uh, the reciting of them i suppose you'd say um there isn't actually an, an interesting uh, story about Jean Tini's um personal life um uh, connecting another popular mystery writer uh, which we can talk about later but back to this film uh, I, I think uh, first of all, uh, apart from writing the uh, writing the job on looks alone, um, I, I was impressed by her performance though. Yeah, I thought you know she, you know sometimes people are cast in a film because they're playing the proverbial straight person, which she was because Rex Harrison had the bigger role of playing the ghost and. You know, it's a little bit like sort of Phantom of the Opera thing. You know, the Phantom of the Opera is actually not in the play that much. A lot of other people are working quite hard from the start of the show to the finish and he comes in and sings a couple of big songs and has a big part at the end and he's the star of the show. So it's, you know, that that sort of uh, thing happening in this film as well. Uh, yeah, look, I thought, it, I thought it was beautifully shot. Now, we had a very famous uh, cinematographer, Charles Lang, who's very well known in the industry and has photographed some of some very famous films, I think like Grapes of Wrath and a few other things that are very well known but had a very long career. Just the film looked beautiful. Now, Jean Tierney is actually American. I thought she did a good job with the accent. You know, let me just go into her. Yeah, she's American. I thought she, she you know, she was born in Brooklyn. I thought she did a pretty good job with it. Yeah, well, um, considering that... Uh... This was a time when quite often um, in a show portrayed in the UK, if you had an American actor, they didn't necessarily um, try that hard to uh, follow the accent of the era uh, or the of the place. Mind you, sometimes it was better that they didn't because sometimes when they did try, it uh, could be a bit uh, awkward. Yeah. But uh, on, on this occasion, it uh, was a good balance. Yeah, I thought so. It was lovely to see um, Natalie Wood as a young child and I thought the the older actress who came in and um, 
uh, played her daughter when she was older. She was fine as well. She did sound a bit American, though. I did notice that. And George Sanders, who had quite a well-known career in his own right, I remember him from a kid. He Well, he was in All About Eve as well. He was in he- Rebecca. Yeah, that creepy, um, that creepy car salesman person. Yeah, and he also in the nineteen sixties. Let me just go through here. Um, so he definitely had a lot of leading roles, and he was there sort of at the beginning. You know, all about Eve. He definitely did some really interesting films with a lot of it interesting, and he was actually won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in All About Eve. Uh, now I remember him. Not surprising. In the 19- yeah. In the 1960s, he actually obviously got into film, I mean, got into television like most people did, and he he was one of the um, – he played Mr Freeze in two episodes of Batman as well. So that's where I first got introduced to him in Batman 1966. He actually was one of the very famous actors that came in and played one of the villains, so he played one of the versions of Mr Freeze. I think Otto Priminger also did as well. So I that's we're going to say he played Alfred. <laughs> But that was just everyone wanted to be on Batman at that stage. People were lobbying to get parts and roles written for them, uh, even ones that weren't necessarily a part of the Batman universe. So, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, being on TV in the 60s and 70s in the US must have been a great, and a lot of them did, including Rex Harrison and Gene Tierney as well. So, yeah, I mean, look, I thought the film, you know, could have been a little bit quicker paced. But then again, it was nice. It was, you know, the ups and downs of her relationship with him. And then what did you think about the ending? Well, I thought it was the um, uh, kind of – you. first of all, you kind of feel sorry for the one that played um, all, the old um, – uh, actor, the old actor, because uh, suddenly um, it's like her youth is restored. And yep. I kind of thought it was humorous that Rex Harrison, that being a – uh, well-known ladies man uh, was in a role where he uh, would not have been able to uh, compete with the living uh, suitors. Yeah, that's it. I mean, hey, these films give me hope that when I go off one day, Larry or whoever's going to be waiting for me. <laughs> so actually the films, even though they were sort of different in tone, um, they actually had very kind of sort of similar endings that everyone ended up in that other earthly realm. uh, I was going to say, talk your surprise endings, though. Um, Did you actually know that Jean Tierney had an indirect influence on um, one of Agatha Christie's stories uh, many years later? No, I didn't, actually. Yeah, well, it's actually quite a sad story because um, Sir Jean Tierney uh, at one point contracted, this is probably about... I think it would have been five years after this. I might be wrong, uh, but uh, she contracted rubella or German measles. Yes, and at the time right, she yeah. was pregnant, she yeah. probably got it from a fan. And, yes, that's right. Uh, yes, and uh, so that unfortunately resulted in her um, child having quite a few severe ailments, uh, and I think had um, uh, permanent intellectual disability as well. Now. I won't give too much spoiler alert, but if you read Agatha Christie's novel, The Mirror Crack from Side to Side, well, hang on, I suppose I already have given a spoiler alert anyway. Okay, I'll just <laughs> keep, keep, keep going. Um, yeah, so um, in that, in that story, you have a famous actress who, unlike in real, Jean in real life actually did um, end up being the uh, murderess because a fan uh, 
met her and told her that years ago she'd like gone against doctor's orders while having German measles to see her at a at a signing or something mm-hmm. and it was after that that she got sick and her and her child died in in, in birth or something so yeah. you're like Agatha Christie uh, she was a master of plots but now and again she would be influenced by headlines yeah, for sure. Yeah, I did actually read that and that was a very sad thing that happened. And, of course, things like that did happen back then. So, um, yeah, and it's amazing that can really change the trajectory of someone's life and obviously that impacted her career in many different ways. So, yeah, that was a, a bit of a sad tale to read. So while we before we finish up here with Rex, you were going to tell us, Matt, a little bit about him being the biggest pain in the butt to work with. Can well, you tell us a little bit about that? Well, to begin with, um, he, uh, like a, a lot of actors at the time, but in the, he was in the most extreme, he basically regarded uh, actresses as being there to pleasure him. There was one particular case <laughs> where he uh, actually indirectly contributed to, um, I think, a co-actor who he was having an affair with her um untimely death because when she was sick with some kind of ailment in her apartment it might have been pneumonia but rather than go directly for an ambulance he wasted a lot of time trying to find a private doctor to treat her in secret Uh, and even without those extremes uh even on dr doolittle he was notorious for um uh, saying a lot of um uh, unpleasant things uh, to um, cast members, and I think he even uh, once, because there was some sort of contract dispute, he got his own uh, private yacht to block part of the set filming or something. Uh, yes, I, I read that as well. Yeah, he he did. Yeah, I think because we were, we spoke about this once. I was speaking about an a, a modern day actor who I'm not a fan of just because he's too vocal on social media about certain things and doesn't like, you know, he just comes across as a real drip. And um, and then you said, oh, did you like the ghost of Mrs. Mirror or something like that? And uh, do you like Rex Harrison? I said, oh, I guess he's okay. And you said, well, he was. <laughs> but I guess now you can find out in real time what they're like a bit more easily so than then because they became sort of fables then that people, you know, obviously people back then didn't speak about it while it was going on. It was just years and years later, but now you can actually find out in real time with their, the own person's voice, but them being highly annoying and stuff. Yeah. Well, I think I'm part of the last of generation that uh, has a, a bit of an experience of uh, seeing public figures for ages only through the, official mainstream channels there's like not as as much there wasn't until i was about in my late teens there wasn't as much of a social media sideline for information to feed on yeah that's right yeah and i was obviously in my what sort of early 30s or something when that happened so yeah but it is interesting and you are right and it is a shame that they have to ruin you know what should be good experiences and and sometimes they have legitimate grievances and and other times and i think as liberace once said if you separate yourself from people you know you have to keep amongst the people amongst real people as well and that's how you sort of keep your humility i mean i guess Mm -hmm. he did to a point but uh you know and so he you know whether he lived that himself is he was actually right about that and i think that's the problem a lot of uh famous people make is they separate themselves away too much from the rest of society and then they become very entitled which is a shame 
Well, there was apparently one time a waiter that smashed his headlights, so this wasn't just on set, but uh, he <laughs> provoked people all the time. And I'm thinking, yeah. in the time that it takes for you to have dinner at a, at a restaurant, what could you have uh, done so provocative to a waiter that he does that? Because yeah. he probably didn't get tipped after that. <laughs> well, I think that one finishes up our Rex Harrison double. Um you know, I mean, he, you know, he's someone that is well known today because those two films that he made, um, these two films we discussed are very well known in their own right, Life Spirit and The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. But, you know, everyone still loves My Fair Lady and still loves Dr. Doolittle. And, you know, you sort of have to take the good. I grew with the up bad. on those two movies. Yeah, and he was really good in both of those films, and he was good in these films. I could imagine I probably prefer Edward Mulhern's version of The Ghost, just because I'm more familiar with that, and that's a bit more nostalgic for me. And I probably maybe could see somebody else in his role in um, Blythe Spirit, but not necessarily too. So, yeah, I mean, I did enjoy both films, and I I really liked Elvira in in Blythe, and uh, uh, I just thought it was a lot of fun. I actually really liked Elvira, so I'd love to see the stage play of that one day. Yeah, it's funny, like, it wasn't that long before that play came about that it was a popular entertainment to have actual seances, and a lot of people probably took them seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's definitely, you know, topics for the time. So, you know, I'm not. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. I might have a look at the new Blythe Spirit and see what that actually turned out like, and how they, just the reviewers here in Australia weren't very kind to it. But that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't any good. So, but we are going to quickly introduce our next double. We were sort of um, wondering what to do, and then I had mentioned to Matt that I finally saw Gilda with the wonderful Rita Hayworth, who is absolutely stunning. So we've decided to do a Rita Hayworth double. So we're doing 1946 Gilda and then 1947 The Lady from Shanghai, directed by Orson Welles. Yeah, I got really excited when we agreed on this topic. Yeah, <laughs> she is stunning. She is beautiful. And she's definitely in one of the top, you know, that top echelon of those classic film actresses from the era that we like to discuss. So that will be our next one. And then Matt and I will have an announcement about another little side podcast we will be doing once a month, but we just want to finalise a few things for that before we, we discuss that with you. So in the meantime, as always, you can find us, Matt, you can find us on all social media, right? Yes, Facebook, Instagram, uh, everywhere you want, you can find Mark Zuckerberg's empire that we have channels on. <laughs> right. So that's When Movies Were Good with Matt and Rachel down here in Australia. So in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and all the best to you.